Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of TechSpansive. I am Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, we are going to jump into all things Apple. Apple, of course, having their annual September product launch. And we'll also dive into some news from Walmart. Ross, you want to kick your thoughts off on uh, some of the things you saw come out of Apple this week? We saw a number of, obviously, hardware launches being the, the key product launches, but also a strong focus, as we've seen over the last year or so from Apple, on services. Yeah, and, and as you've said uh, many times, Sean, I, I think this is kind of the blueprint for the future. Uh, there, uh, th- those two phenomena sharing the spotlight at these big events moving forward. So, on the hardware side, uh, as very much expected, you know, this has traditionally been their iPhone event, and they did not disappoint there. They came out with. Uh, uh, the iPhone 11 and three different flavors of that. Uh, we can talk about it in a minute. They came out with a new generation of the Apple Watch, and they came out with a new version of the baseline iPad, the seventh generation of the iPad. So it really kind of shows the maturity cycles of, of a lot of these products at this point. Uh, seventh generation iPad, 11th generation iPhone fifth generation Apple Watch, which we think of as a a relatively new product, maybe even an emerging product category. And uh, particularly on at least the first two, the phone and the watch, there was uh, a lot, you know, many of the new features were criticized for just bringing in the kinds of things that we have seen in competitive products in many cases years ago. So for the phone, the uh, particularly on the iPhone Pro, the big addition was a third camera, an ultra-wide camera. Uh, LG has had this uh, in their phones for, I think, what, Sean, maybe three years, would you say, yeah. uh, at least? Uh, and then on the watch... The exciting news was an always-on display, which, again, has been things we've seen on Android Wear or Wear OS watches uh, for many years. Um, and uh, in, in terms of implementation, the uh, Apple also added a, a night mode, uh, again, answering what uh, we've seen from Google and uh, and Huawei uh, for a, a number of years. Uh, there seems particularly well implemented. Uh, the the colors look very good in their uh, in their night shot feature. Probably the biggest news actually was keeping the uh, the, the baseline iPhone at uh, the iPhone 11, I should say, at 699, uh, and we have talked quite a bit on the podcast about Apple continuing to push the uh, average prices up on their products to compensate for slowing unit volumes. But of course, you can only play that game for so long. And it seems that a number of the features that they're adding on the Pro line uh, are, are aptly named because they're not necessarily things that 
a lot of consumers will appreciate and may not be willing to pay a thousand dollars or more for so to get the iPhone back into that $700 range really brings it back to a level where you know they had great success uh, and uh, is, is more in line with expectations for what consumers are, are looking for these days uh, similarly with the Apple watch they're leaving the third generation in the lineup at I believe 199 uh, so Again, that's going to cover a lot of the bases of what people are looking for uh, in, in this kind of product. So um, I would say that the changes that they've made were welcome, certainly not revolutionary. But again, you are dealing with products that are maturing. And in many respects, uh, certainly in the iPad and watch are already far, far ahead of what we're seeing from the competition. So it's it's difficult to pile on there, I would say, uh, in, in some cases. What are your thoughts? I, I think you do see some subtle shifts, and you alluded to this a little bit, some subtle shifts in their business model where they are trying to keep those price points attractive. To your point, the, the feature set differentiation is been minimized across hardware, so there's not the the, the uh, large gap that once existed between Apple products and other products, and so they need to bring that price point down to where uh, it's attractive to the average consumers. Well, at the same time, they still obviously have premium products, and the the Pro Max Eleven is you know fits those desires and those needs. I I found it interesting that as you noted watch series 3 stays in the market dropping to 199 the iPhone 8 which had originally launched at 699 drops to 449 mm. and stays in the market so they're leaving these older models in the market at lower price points perhaps introductory options and for somebody who like my mom who you know who might not need the latest and greatest features that iPhone 8 at at 449 is actually a very attractive uh, price point for her. It keeps her in the ecosystem that she's accustomed to. So you continue to see them build that out. And I think that's a strategy they're going to push moving forward. We're seeing them rethink their China strategy, given uh, the tariff wars that are that are going on. They're looking mm. at building facilities elsewhere i've seen some news that they're expanding in places like india that have historically had pretty strong import barriers and so they needed to be in india brazil is the same way they need to be in those markets in order to service those markets i think india is a market that's very attractive to them but they're going to need to address it with lower priced products and so this is this the start of that not only with the the newest phone but also by keeping some of those older models in the market and it really is a departure from what we used to see from apple where they quickly pulled those older devices out of the marketplace and you you had very few options uh, it wasn't that long ago where you would have just two flavors of the the newest phone and obviously before that only one and so you're seeing that portfolio really start to expand in lots of different ways i i would agree you know in the past they would keep one model around from the previous generation maybe and you know cut it by a hundred dollars but with iphone 8 you know you're going two generations back um and 
they have a good, very good story to tell about backward compatibility, but at some point, I wonder if it uh, affects their ability to innovate uh, as much as they would like for the highest end hardware because they want to maintain compatibility with something not only that's a few years older and that people may have bought a few years ago, but something that they're selling now. You know, that, that's, that's kind of a different proposition um, between to say, hey, you bought this thing two years ago and we're being a good a good vendor that you can rely on by maintaining its value <laughs> versus you, you just bought this and it can't run the latest operating system, uh, which, which has been a big part of their developer pitch that, you know, how quickly their, their user base moves to the, uh, to, to the latest version. So I just have two more quick thoughts on this, which are one, I think they learned uh, a lesson from the, 10R versus 10S, where it really wasn't necessarily clear uh, which was the, the better device, at least in consumers' minds. I think they definitely thought they knew, but, uh, but the 10R was unsurprisingly uh, the, uh, the bestseller of the last generation. And uh, this, this time around, they have done a much better job of delineating between the baseline uh, iPhone 11 and the Pro, you know, not not just in name, but also in features. You know, it's clear that the Pro is better on on all fronts. Uh, and then the last thing that I, I just think is worth mentioning, as we talk about uh, being more open to a more price sensitive part of the market, is the uh, is the new iPad. Uh, it's easy to gloss it over because there's nothing too fancy about it. Um, but when you add up all the pieces, it's, it's actually uh, a pretty impressive product, I think. You know, it's, it's 329. Uh, they are now off, they, they increased the size, so it's now 10.2 inches as opposed to the traditional 9.7. They added support for their smart keyboard and it already had support for the pencil. So they drew comparisons between the iPad and the best-selling Windows uh, notebook. I don't know if they ever gave the price, but I, I think it's a fair bet to say that even with the keyboard, you're looking at something that's close uh, or you know comparable in terms of pricing. Um, the other product that I think it uh, is, is very much a direct answer to is the Surface Go, which probably isn't selling in anywhere near the volumes of, of the iPad. Uh, but when you look at the specs, they're they're quite close. You know, this 10.2 inch display, the key, the idea of a keyboard cover, support for a stylus, and uh, uh, it seems that Microsoft has had more success with that smaller form factor than um, than they have in the past, and uh, they're expected to upgrade it uh, at an event here in New York uh, next in, in a couple of weeks uh, on on October second, and I uh, I should be at that event. So um, I you know one just kind of final thought on this I had is that it seems that a decade after this war between, you know, is it going to be the, the small laptop, the netbook, or the tablet, you know, that becomes this kind of mid-form factor between full-featured laptop and, and smartphone, the industry has kind of converged, right, on this tablet-like device, but it's a two-in-one, 
So obviously a few different flavors out there, but, uh, but it seems to kind of bring together the, the best of both. Well, Ross, as, as you pointed out many times on this podcast, Apple really owns that tablet space today. They really have taken over and it used to be a very fragmented market with very low priced tablets that you could pick up at every drugstore on the corner. And as that market has uh, solidified, it really has become an, an Apple dominated marketplace. Uh, let's rotate now to some of the service announcements that Apple made. Notably, Apple Arcade will debut September 19th at $4.99 a month. And you can get a free month trial. It uh, is, Apple also noted that they've added hundreds of games to its catalog and will add more in the coming weeks. We also saw uh, more news on Apple TV. It will launch November 1st at a $4.99 a month price point in 100 countries. In countries like India, which, which we noted, it will launch at $1.40 a month, hitting below other streaming services in that marketplace. It's also worth noting that Apple announced customers will get one free year with the purchase of an Apple device. And Apple's selling several hundred million devices a year. So this will yeah, easily suggest that they could easily have um, a large user base very, very quickly. Your thoughts, Ross, on some of the uh, service announcements that we saw this week? Yeah, you know, a few things. Uh, I, I don't think there was, I think for, for both services, the, the big news was the price. There, you know, certainly for Apple Arcade, there really weren't any other, many, many other details. They showed a few demos. You know, the games looked fine. <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough to judge, of course, uh, un until you play them. And uh, it's, it's good to see that folks will, will get a chance to play them. On the uh, on the TV side, uh, and just to clarify, uh, the service is TV Plus, uh, the, uh, uh, the the Apple's television device is Apple TV. So it's uh, it's a little it's, they're very similar, um, but but that's the difference. Uh, the they showed a trailer for a uh, Jason uh, Momoa uh, vehicle named uh, called C, uh, which uh, seemed pretty neat. I, I think. What I take away from these is that Apple has just a far stronger hand uh, because they are producing or at least curating the content uh, with these services as opposed to Apple Music, where it has been very difficult for uh, any company to get a sustainable advantage because you're all dealing with essentially the same content at essentially the same price uh so it's been um it's been very tough um with apple tv plus they own presumably all the shows uh or at least they finance them so uh they have far more say in how they are distributed and what the terms of that distribution are or how much money they are willing to invest for how long um, and for arcade, uh, they don't own you know that content necessarily, uh, but they have likely paid for exclusivity. And in any case, the games play only on Apple platforms. So uh, I suppose for at least some of them, 
the developers could port to other platforms. But if you're a game developer, uh, the iPhone is a is a very good place to be. Um, so um, so we'll see uh, where where they go. But uh, particularly on the TV side, it seems that they have. Um, taken a lesson from Disney, uh, which came in very aggressive on the pricing front. And if you signed up for their three-year plan, I think you're coming in at even less than uh, Apple. Uh, but the big difference, of course, between Disney Plus and Apple's TV Plus is that you know, Disney has an unparalleled uh, assortment of collection of intellectual property uh, from their animated movie, classic animated movies, to Pixar, to Star Wars, to Marvel. I mean, some of the the biggest films, uh, certainly of of all time, and particularly of of the last uh, couple of years. Whereas, uh, you know, whereas Apple may produce some very high quality shows it's it's unknown at this point how well they will resonate you know they've they've certainly signed up some good talent uh but uh but it's tough to know so uh also there is certainly going to be a lot less on the service when it debuts although they will certainly uh, add to that over time well and and there's very low risk obviously they're selling over 200 million devices a year giving mm-hmm. customers one free year gives them a sizable market to start with even if nobody is paying get them comfortable with the uh the service you've got an installed base of 900 million products globally and so you could imagine that even getting 10 percent of that puts them at 90 to 100 million users in the next uh, couple of years so it, it, apple has the ability to scale services very quickly scale offerings very quickly even when the initial value proposition doesn't seem to be there uh, and so we'll it'd be interesting to see with this if if the same holds true but in both of these cases i think in future apple announcements we'll hear about the great success that the service platforms are having and how quickly they've scaled to uh, to very large user groups. I, I wonder if in the short term they will try to measure that success in terms of engagement, right? Like particularly if nobody's paying at first. I, I suppose they'll come out and talk about the you know crazy number of aggregate hours that have been racked up uh, watching the service because that is they, they may consider that a decent proxy for their opportunity to steal customers from uh from say netflix right sure, and, if, uh, yeah. and if you've got shows coming out that you want to have wide distribution for apple will try to make the the value proposition seem large come right to the apple tv plus platform we've got this many users we've got this many hours it will be interesting to see if they do report on hours because uh, apple tries to really highlight how privacy centric they are and privacy focused they are and if right but an aggregate i mean yeah yeah. but if all of a sudden they're reporting how how much their users are on the service it may uh, play against them but it'll be interesting to see i think you're right they they will use statistics early on probably not revenue statistics to try to highlight the the value of the proposition and i mean it could easily get big quick 
they even, uh, you know, even before they showed off the, the new shows, they were touting how many times the trailer for some of their upcoming shows have been watched. So uh, if that's any indication, right. you know, we can, we can expect more with the shows. We, we didn't get an out, you know, we, it seems like it's been a while since we've gotten an update on Apple Music, which was kind of their 1.0 modern media service. Um, you know, we've talked in the past on the podcast of the back and forth between them and Spotify. And, and the latest we've heard is that it seems they may be making some concessions uh, or some accommodations, perhaps, uh, for Spotify to gain better integration on the platform. But uh, Sean, I'm curious about your sense of how well they have done in 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 music, you know, because clearly it was their ambition to be number one. You talk about the user base, and they've done they've they've definitely attracted some subscribers, and we're still early on, but it hasn't seemed that they have you know uh, rolled over Spotify as as quickly as I think some people thought they would. Right, and and what you see is that Spotify is going after a domain that Apple has had strong control over, and that's in the podcast space. Uh, you did see last week that Apple has expanded their Apple Music to uh, uh, beyond the app and allowing users to uh, stream it from the browser. Oh, okay. They launched a new web interface uh, last week that's public beta for subscribers. And so you have seen them try to push into other areas beyond just the, just the um, the phone. So, so that would be one way for. I don't think they really had a path onto Windows, for example, right. uh, until this. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and obviously they have a lot of iPhone users that are using uh, Windows PCs, and so this is a way for them to continue to enjoy Apple Music. It, it's clear that in order to be dominant in that music space, you need to be somewhat ubiquitous to the devices that users are using. And Spotify sure. did that very well early on, being one of the, the very early uh, services onto Amazon Alexa, for example, or, or uh, Amazon Echo. And um, even one of their, to me, one of their great features early on was that if you were listening to Spotify on your mobile device in the vehicle and then walked into the home and, and asked Alexa to play Spotify, it would pick up right where you left off. Right, right. So having that, that seamless integration and that seamless feel. And I think Apple is, is trying to move that direction. I think the, the HomePod was their hope that they could really bring music into multiple rooms in the home. Obviously, that hasn't been uh, nearly as successful as some of the other home voice control devices like Google or, or Amazon have brought to market. Right, but they're uh, supporting it on the Echo, I, I believe, right? And, and music is, uh, I think, the only one of their services I mean, it wouldn't, you know, they couldn't do it for games. Maybe at some point they'll do it for TV Plus, uh, where they do have uh, an Android client that they right. kind of um, inherited when they, when they bought Beats um, and, and they kept it. Uh, so they're they're supporting Roku with TV Plus. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that that also gives them uh, a spot on TCL televisions and other televisions that support uh, integrated Roku. Um, and you know, there's some decent volume there. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, they'll, 
they, uh, you know, certainly they, they won't have the uh, in integration levels of Netflix <laughs> for, for some time, but, uh, but yeah, there'll be no shortage of screens on, on which to watch TV plus. So. Shall we still see what more comes of that in the coming months as that starts to roll out? And um, I, I'm sure Apple will be quick to announce uh, success stories there. Uh, the final story we thought we'd hit on is Walmart's plans to roll out unlimited grocery delivery plans, really targeting Amazon Fresh and, and even Instacart and others uh, for 98 bucks a month or twelve ninety. excuse me, $98 a year or twelve ninety five a month, you can get uh, essentially what appears to be unlimited grocery deliveries from Walmart, as opposed to traditionally having to pay nine ninety nine a uh, uh, a delivery. And so you see them um, having already done some some uh, pilots in a couple of markets, including Houston, Miami, Salt Lake City, and, and Tampa earlier this year. Now looking to expand that across their 1,600 plus stores nationwide, in hopes that they get to 50 percent of the country by year end. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, this is the the mother of all battles for Walmart uh, fighting Amazon in the grocery space. It's it's a huge uh, segment of the economy. It's a segment where Amazon is not particularly strong. Uh, and uh, Walmart, I think, believes it is theirs to lose. So uh, they they want to make sure that they're uh, being very aggressive in terms of uh, grocery because it's uh, you know it's 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 such a, an important reason to visit the store um, and and drive so many other kinds of transactions. Um, so and and you know a huge um, part of the value of um, having a physical, you know, physical presence um, as opposed to say Amazon fresh where, you know, you're, you're kind of, I mean, th th there's more that's going to happen there. I'm sure with whole foods, but, but at least for today, you know, a lot of it has traditionally happened uh, only online. So uh, the, um, uh, in terms of the pricing, uh, Walmart announcing $98 for the year or $12.95 a month uh, compared to Amazon's $14 a month. And that's, and to get that pricing, you have to be a prime member. So it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, quite a bit more um, all told, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I think traditionally Amazon, uh, Walmart has uh, shied away from these kinds of uh, recurring service fees. When they launched two-day shipping, they shied away from having any kind of uh, prime-like pricing for that, instead just saying if you meet the minimum order, it's free. But it's just difficult to make, you know, you, you just can't make uh, the economics of this work on, unless you're charging on one hand. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I think it's going to be a tough sell to certainly a lot of Walmart's uh, customer base. So, yeah, I, th I think what you've seen Amazon proves that people are willing to pay an annual subscription for access to a host of services. And early on, that that service was primarily just free shipping, and then obviously expanded to include Prime Video and and 
music and other things. But you do see that consumers seem to be willing to pay for these type of what historically were one-off services as a annual subscription. So that may play to Walmart's advantage here. But to your point, Ross, it definitely does not seem to speak to the, the core Walmart customer, uh, but rather it, it looks like it really goes head to head with um, the, the Amazon Prime Whole Foods customer who, who might be mm-hmm. using Amazon Fresh today. So in some ways it, it could very well uh, steal customers away from, from Amazon Fresh. I think what Walmart has to recognize is that Amazon will move quickly into this space and as this as this space matures and people are, get, are, are ready for grocery delivery, Amazon will already be well entrenched and they've done that in a, a number of categories. And so Walmart is getting out in front of that today. Yeah, it'll also be interesting to see where, how Go, how the Go stores fit into this. I mean, again, it's another physical touch point for Amazon. It could bring them a lot closer to, uh, for example, uh, major urban centers, you know, people getting deliveries at lunchtime and, and so forth. So, yeah, definitely could really, it could change the, obviously the order size when you're not having, and that's what Amazon Prime has proven is that you, when you don't need to hit some minimum spend, then you can start to make one-off purchases. Right. Walmart has, if they can convert it, built large built-in distribution centers all across the country, except for where you live, Ross, of course. <laughs> but but everywhere bubble. else, you're within a few miles of a Walmart, if not multiple Walmarts, that if they if they can figure out how to leverage that infrastructure and leverage the logistics that are involved there and, and then make it outward facing, that's the, the toughest thing is right now, there's a tremendous amount of cost when retailers have to try to use their retail stores as the distribution for local delivery, it ends up being uh, very labor intensive. And so they're going to have to rethink and and, uh, redesign what that looks like. Well, that's a great place to end. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And you can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Don't forget to share the podcast with your friends, check out the website and share your thoughts with us. We look forward to joining you next week for another episode of Techspansive. Mm-hmm.